Sacred Embrace The Book of Mormon account of the risen Lord began with an embrace. See 3 Nephi 5, paragraph 6. The first wound that was felt when the people came to the Lord at Bountiful was in an embrace. It was the wound on his side. The first place he brings you is to himself, standing in his presence, beside him, in an embrace, and playing humility, as if any of us were good enough to stand in his presence. That is where it begins. Then his hands, and then as it fully dawns upon you the enormity of the gulf between you and him, where you end up is kneeling at his feet. It's the wounds on the feet you see last. In 3 Nephi 8, paragraph 6, the Lord reminded the Nephites that they should remember the body which he had shown unto them. Partaking of the sacrament in the way that he instituted was to remind them of the sacred embrace and ceremony of recognition they had just participated in with the risen Lord. The Lord could give no greater testimony of what he had done, who he was, and how he served them than by showing to them his risen body still bearing the marks of crucifixion and a ceremony of recognition and sacred embrace. You will find that the rites of the LDS temple are a wonderfully accurate preparation for the real event. See also the glossary entry, Ceremony of Recognition. Sacred Information Almost without exception, people who are unable to keep things sacred will never receive exposure to the most sacred. When a person treats sacred information in an appropriate way, they prove themselves to be worthy of weightier information. Abraham 6, paragraph 2. When it is given unto them to know the mysteries of God, they are laid under a strict command that they shall not impart, only according to the portion of his word which he doth grant unto the children of men, according to the heed and diligence which they give unto him. Alma 9, paragraph 3. That which is holy belongs to those who make themselves holy through their repentance. When the price has been paid, the person is now trusted, and the mysteries have been shown unto them, they possess pearls of great price. Such things do not belong to swine who are unclean, unrepentant, unwilling to do what is needed to qualify for the Lord's presence, unthankful, and unholy. See 3 Nephi 6. Paragraph 2 and TNC 25, Paragraph 2. Entrusting the things that are, in truth, most sacred to those who are not qualified will arouse their anger. They will turn and rend the humble followers of God because they will have been shown something that excites their envy, jealousy, hatred, and fear. See Helaman 2, Paragraph 35. They know God's chosen has something they lack. They harbor resentment because of what they cannot easily obtain. Therefore, one must carefully measure what is given to others. The final arbiter of the decision to impart is not made by man. It is made by the Lord. Those who are eager to share with others any tidbit of information they learn about the sacred are not helping anyone and may forfeit things themselves. Why would they do such a thing? Is it to make themselves look good, therefore, because of vanity? Is it to try to help others? If it is to help, then the information should not be shared. The manner in which the information is gained should be shared. Teaching another the way to receive sacred information for themselves is charitable. 
Showing off sacred information is worse than foolish. It will bless no one and will destroy both the unprepared audience and the unwise speaker. Sacrifice This world is the place of sacrifice. All of humanity came here to make sacrifices. They wanted to come here, knowing it would require sacrifice to produce the faith necessary for salvation, and all gladly came. According to the lectures on faith, Christ is the great prototype of the saved man. He came and gave himself as a sacrifice, and mankind is to follow him if they are to be saved. Men and women came here to lay everything on the altar, their desires, appetites, passions, and everything with which the Lord has blessed them. Abraham put his beloved son on the altar, intending to kill him and then burn his remains because God asked it of him. He did not refuse. However bitter, terrible, and painful the request, the Lord asked it of Abraham, and he proceeded to offer it. No one obtains the faith necessary for salvation unless they are prepared to sacrifice all things to God. Faith for salvation cannot otherwise be obtained. See lectures on faith. Now I do not expect anyone to be asked to sacrifice their only child, nor to be told to kill someone and take their possessions. What I expect is that in the context of the life someone has lived or is living, they will be asked to do or not do something which is so specific to them that they alone will understand why it is a sacrifice to them. If asked of another, it may be completely insignificant. But when asked of them, it will be exactly what the person will struggle to place on the Lord's altar. Hence the term sacrifice with its partial meaning of parting with something involving great value to them. However, it is not possible to rule anything in or out. The Lord alone will know you and what is required for you to obtain this faith. The requirements for obtaining this kind of faith are the same for every man or woman who has ever lived. Without making the sacrifice, it is not possible to obtain the faith. Sacrifice is necessary if a person is to have faith. Men and women can believe a lot of things, but if they're going to have faith, it is the order of heaven that they have to make sacrifice to demonstrate that faith. And in the last days, before the Lord comes, he is to gather together his saints who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice, lectures on faith 6, paragraph 9. This is not a covenant to sacrifice. One can go make a covenant to sacrifice every day the LDS temple is open. Making a covenant to sacrifice is not at all the same thing as making a covenant by sacrifice. It's only through actually sacrificing that it is possible for the Lord to make a covenant with man. Our God shall come, and shall not keep silence. A fire shall devour before him, and it shall be very tempestuous round about him. He shall call to the heavens from above, and to the earth, that he may judge his people. Gather my saints together unto me, those that have made a covenant with me by sacrifice. Psalms 50, paragraph 1. Sacrifice is directly related to faith. Obtaining faith requires sacrifice. It can be had in no other way. When sacrifice is an end in itself, it produces nothing. Sacrifice must be directed toward the correct end, or it fails to produce faith. 
If sacrifice were in itself an end, then self-denial, self-abuse, and the most extreme practices of asceticism would be noble. But they are not. Rather, they are self-centered and selfish. There is nothing noble about these extremes. They never produce great faith. From Moses to Jesus Christ there was sacrifice performed as a daily rite in Jerusalem, excepting only temporary interludes, including the Babylonian captivity. In spite of performing daily sacrifices, the people most directly involved had no visitations from angels, had no revelations, received no audience with God, and performed no miracles. When Christ came to fulfill the law of sacrifice, the ones performing the sacrifices were the least willing to accept him. The sacrifices they had and were performing had no faith-producing effects for them. Sacrifice must, therefore, be connected with a proper understanding of how it relates to something higher. Sacrifices are not intended to teach one how to sacrifice. They are intended to teach an underlying truth. If there is no understanding of that underlying truth, then the act of sacrifice can become a meaningless end in itself. Almost any principle of the gospel can become a misleading end in itself. The gospel is a harmony of principles correctly weighed and measured. It is a symphony and not a single, bloated, and distorted note. The underlying truth sacrifice teaches is simple. All great truths are simple. If they were not, then they could not be obtained by the weak, simple, and childlike. And, of course, it was and is to such persons that the gospel has always been primarily directed. Sacrifice is a tool that is given to change one's heart and realign one to being less materialistic and more spiritual. Men and women can only let in one light at a time. They are so constituted to be able to focus on only one thing at a time. One must necessarily choose between all other things and that one thing. Christ is teaching, through sacrifice, how to choose God above all else. Sacrifice allows men and women to show, by their choice, that what they lay upon the altar is not more treasured to them than God's will for them. By laying themselves and their emotional needs on the altar and sacrificing the things this world values, they are saying and proving they choose the other world to this one. They value the things of the spirit above the material things of this existence. It is another affirmation that they would prefer to have their existence filled with things of the spirit rather than filled with the materialism of the world. I used to think having the right heart must precede action to be of any worth. What I have found instead is that action can lead the heart. Christ's Sermon on the Mount is a call to action. Do the things asked by him and the heart will follow. The mind can lead the heart. The heart does not always have to go first. Saint the English word saint is derived from the Latin sanctus, holy. The typical use of the Greek word, yos, in the KJV, which is defined usually as holy, sacred, pure, sanctified, consecrated, or separated, is holy in 161 instances, saint or saint 61 times, and holy one four times. 
Saints are supposed to be identified as baptized followers of Christ, holy, sacred, consecrated, and pure, and in the scriptures they often are, but historically they have also fallen short of that description. Sanctification is the process of becoming a saint. For the natural man is an enemy to God and will be forever and ever, but if he yields to the enticings of the Holy Spirit, and putteth off the natural man, and becometh a saint through the atonement of Christ the Lord, Mosiah 1, paragraph 16. It is a godly aspiration to become a saint or belong to the body of saints. Sainthood is not defined in the scriptures the same way modern religions portray formally recognized and canonized individuals, although some, including Mother Teresa and St. Francis of Assisi, have been exemplary role models for Christians and non-Christians alike. In an age of darkness and apostasy, the Lord spoke with St. Francis and set angels to minister to him. He is appropriately referred to as a saint. He lived the Sermon on the Mount. It is perhaps St. Francis who, above all others, proves a mortal may walk in the Lord's steps. Christ did it first and more completely than any other would. But St. Francis surely followed. Many religious organizations, including the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, headquartered in Salt Lake City, Utah, the largest denomination claiming Joseph Smith as their founder, as well as the Community of Christ, headquartered in Independence, Missouri, the second largest denomination, equate the term saint with the term member and believe them to be synonymous. See also the glossary entry, Sanctification. Salem. The Hebrew is Shalim or peace. Salem is used consistently throughout the Joseph Smith translation of the Bible. See Genesis 7, paragraph 14 and 20 and Psalm 76, paragraph 1. And the Book of Mormon confirms that Melchizedek was a king over the land of Salem in Alma 10, paragraph 2, which may be interpreted as a land of peace. Joseph Smith said that the word Salem should be correctly rendered shalom, meaning peace. It is understood by many by reading that Melchizedek was king of some country or nation on the earth, but it was not so. Hebrews 1, paragraph 1. In the original it reads king of shalom, which signifies king of peace or righteousness, and not of any country or nation. Salem is designed for a Hebrew term. It should be Shiloam, which signifies righteousness and peace. Since the King James Version of the New Testament comes from Greek manuscripts, the transliteration of Sal. Me. Given as Salem in Hebrews 1, paragraph 17 is correct. See also the glossary entry, Melchizedek. Salvation. Getting to know the Lord, see John 9, paragraph 19. The teachings of the Savior most clearly show the nature of salvation and what he proposed to the human family when he proposed to save them. He wanted to make them like unto himself, and he was like the Father, the great prototype of all saved beings, and for any portion of the human family to be assimilated into their likeness is to be saved, and to be unlike them is to be destroyed. And on this hinge turns the door of salvation. 
Lectures on Faith 7, Paragraph 16 For salvation consists in the glory, authority, majesty, power, and dominion which Jehovah possesses, and in nothing else. And no being can possess it but himself or one like him. Lectures on Faith 7, Paragraph 10 Salvation means a man's being placed beyond the powers of all his enemies, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 301. Being saved means to have increase. There isn't going to be any man or group of men who save you. There is literally a single way and a single source. That is Christ, Mosiah 1, paragraph 16. Whether you are able to receive salvation or not is entirely dependent on how you respond to him, not to other people, 2 Nephi 6, paragraph 11. There is no collective salvation. Each person comes to him one at a time. Even when he redeems a group, he visits with them individually, see 3 Nephi 5, paragraphs 5 to 7. To speak of Christ is necessarily to speak of salvation. To understand Christ is to understand salvation. Salvation requires of us what was required of Christ. We cannot be different from Christ and be saved because salvation depends upon being precisely what he is and nothing else. Despite how plainly this is put, we still seem not to comprehend. Remember, when you climb up a ladder, you must begin at the bottom and ascend step by step until you arrive at the top. And so it is with the principles of the gospel. You must begin with the first and go on until you learn all the principles of exaltation. But it will be a great while after you have passed through the veil before you will have learned them, teachings of the prophet Joseph Smith, page 348, and words of Joseph Smith, page 350. Christ came to complete his salvation and attain to the resurrection of the dead. All men and women will need to do likewise to be saved. The prototype of the saved man is Jesus Christ. If any man will be saved, he must be precisely what Christ is and nothing else, because Christ attained to the resurrection. All men and women are going to be resurrected, but it was Christ who attained to the resurrection for their benefit. On the other side of mankind's resurrection, they won't hold the keys of death and hell. He will. He'll use them for your benefit, but ultimately you are going to have to hold the keys of death and hell if you are going to be precisely what the prototype of the saved man is or else not be saved. Therefore, come unto me and be ye saved. For verily I say unto you that except ye shall keep my commandments which I have commanded you at this time, ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. 3 Nephi 5 Paragraph 23 There goes the argument that all you need do to be saved is confess Jesus. It doesn't work that way. You must keep his commandments. If you don't, then ye shall in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. It is not possible to come unto him and be saved without also keeping his commandments. It is the only true measure of coming to him. And except ye shall keep his commandments, ye can in no case enter into the kingdom of heaven. Entry is barred unless you follow him. If he needed baptism to enter, then clearly we do as well. Righteousness comes by obedience.
Obedience requires action. Without conforming conduct to the Lord's commandments, it is impossible to enter into the kingdom of heaven.